This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. One of the founding members of Al-Qaeda has been killed. Uh, His real name is Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah. He had risen to be number two in the Al-Qaeda Central Organization. And he was the mastermind behind the embassy attacks, the very first major Al-Qaeda attack on the two U.S. embassies in 1999 in East Africa. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, joins us to explain how his assassination went down. But this was an Israeli hit team that killed him on the street of, of uh, Tehran in the Pastorantic district, which is the northern, the more elegant part of, of Tehran. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Let me right off the bat say we promised you last week that we would get deeper into the presidential transition situation that's unfolding here in Washington. But something else has come up that can trump that, no pun intended. This is a situation where a man who was a member a founding member of al-Qaeda, which is known for the devastating 9-11 attack that killed more than 3,000 Americans. And he was killed on the street in Tehran some time ago. But we just found out about it over the weekend. Joining us on this program is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, to tell us who Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah was, what happened on the streets in Tehran, and what this means for Al-Qaeda and the rest of the world. Yes, I mean, who uh, is Al-Qaeda's number two is always a hot topic of discussion. Um, He certainly, um, and this is uh, a a guy called Al-Masri, who is one of the very early, really central operatives of uh, Al-Qaeda. His real name is Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah. And he was the mastermind behind the embassy attacks, the very first major Al-Qaeda attack on the two U.S. embassies in 1999 in East Africa. Um, And a close confidant of uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, um, uh, his daughter um, was married to the son of Osama bin Laden. So, you know, top, top leadership from the very beginning of the organization. And he was killed in an assassination in Tehran, actually, in Iran. How did he get to Tehran? Yeah, the Al-Qaeda-Iranian relationship is a complex one and has gone through several phases, and this is a hold out of the last phase. So at the very beginning, Iran simply looked the other way, um, and there was a supply line. And at the very beginning, I mean, at the establishment of Al-Qaeda, when the Taliban had taken over uh, Afghanistan and the camps were setting up, there was a supply line going through Sahadan into Afghanistan. And that was basically a phase where Iran simply ignored that stuff was going into Afghanistan. Um, they didn't want to get into any 
hot waters with what was going on in this country um, um, on previous bad experiences with the Taliban and just ignored it. And then once the, um, there was a flow out after 2001 of uh, Al-Qaeda refugees, they captured many hundreds of them actually in Iran, including some parts of the top leadership, including several wives of Osama bin Laden, some of the children of Osama bin Laden. They extradited all the, the foot soldiers back to their home countries, sometimes for monetary concessions, sometimes for political concessions, but they kept Osama bin Laden's family and the top leadership in, I would say, uh, not in prison, but in, under confinement uh, near Lavazan outside Tehran and used them essentially as hostages. Uh, very clearly telling Osama bin Laden, apparently, um, that uh, any, any attack in, in Iran and, uh, you know, we will ship back your family in boxes. And that worked uh, until uh, the middle of the 2000s. Um, then you had a few incidents where it was clear that this kind of arrangement, uh, you know, your family's alive and safe and, you know, semi-free in Iran uh, uh, in exchange for no attacks had broken down. There were a couple of attacks of Al-Qaeda-linked organizations within Iran, not directly Al-Qaeda, but linked to Al-Qaeda. And there were a couple of Iranian diplomats that were uh, captured in the tribal areas or you know, abducted in the tribal areas, right, uh, uh, just around the time where Os Osama bin Laden himself got killed by the Americans. So mm -hmm. the agreement didn't work anymore and the, the, the central linchpin didn't work anymore. And then the question is, what did they then? Um, some of them they gave back to the Saudis, some of them they sent back into Afghanistan, and apparently some of them stayed on in Iran. And this is one of the stay-ons. So how did he end up dead? What happened? Well, we can only, I mean, I, I don't have you know, access to classified intelligence. I can only tell you what is public information. Public information is that this was an Israeli hit team that killed him on the street of, of uh, Tehran in the Pastoran district, which is the northern the more elegant part of, of Tehran, uh, in the street together with his daughter, the, the widow of Hamza bin Laden. So when, when did this take place? Well, apparently already in August. Um, there was um, some really weird, because assassinations in Tehran are not a daily occurrence, as you can imagine. Yeah. So there was media reporting in August that, that some um, you know, unknown, uh, there was a name, but you really didn't tell anyone anything, Hezbollah businessman had been killed in the streets of Tehran. It's really strange because the name didn't ring a bell with anyone. No one exactly knew why anyone would assassinate a Hezbollah guy in Tehran or why the Israelis would uh, um, assassinate a Hezbollah guy in Tehran um, if he's not really an important guy. Um, and then it turns out now over the weekend, uh, the news broke by the New York Times, um, that this was actually just the cover identity of Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah, who the Americans, of course, were hunting since the, the, the uh, attacks on the embassies. And uh, even the Security Council, if you remember, um, the resolution that set up the Al-Qaeda sanctions regime was passed in 1999 as a reaction to the embassy attacks, not as, the, you know, as widely is assumed the 9-11 uh, the attacks, but the, the Security Council started sanctioning Al-Qaeda after the embassy attacks in, in, in East Africa. So you can see what an importance uh, this target was for the American side. So I would think this is a very believable story. It comes from credible sources within Israel. Of course, of course you know, Israel doesn't confirm. The U.S. officially doesn't confirm at this point. Um, and the Iranians deny that it happened, as you would imagine. Um, but I would think this is still a very credible story.
it's my understanding that he he as number two in the organization um being being out of the picture would be a significant problem for al qaeda these days so it really depends um on what your definition of a number two is so you know if your definition of the number two is a long standing member of the top echelon of al qaeda with family links to osama bin laden Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah fits the picture. Um, if the number two, however, is defined as an influence over the Al-Qaeda global network and operational involvement, then he no longer fits this. He was the top operational guy in the uh, early 2000s, for sure, late 90s, early 2000s. But he hasn't been really operationally number two for quite a while. So it's a very important target. It's a very, uh, you know, symbolic hit. Um, I do not think that, uh, as far as the operational aspects is concerned, that this will weaken Al-Qaeda in a strategic sense. Also, because Al-Qaeda no longer does the way it organizes terrorist operations, the way it does, uh, has done in the early 2000s. So there is no longer a operational command and control center somewhere with a top leadership for Al-Qaeda that decides on attacks in East Africa, in Europe, Uh, or, or in Southeast Asia uh, um, uh, when it comes to, to significant operations. Most of these at the moment have been organized, um, uh, decentralized by cells um, already in place, or at least in the region. There was one cell that was arrested in April in Germany where you had some kind of links to Al-Qaeda back to Afghanistan, however, while this guy was, uh, was killed in, in Tehran. So I don't think that we are, as far as Al-Qaeda is concerned, at a stage where killing someone from the central leadership is going to have a massive operational impact, the way it would have if this man would have been killed in the early 2000s. You know, there is another individual that um, it is my understanding, and I could be wrong, which would not be the first time, uh, that allegedly resided in Iran, uh, who may be the new number two, and it, it, it was an individual by the name of Saif al-Adil. Saif al-Adil is, again, one of the very long-standing, most famous al-Qaeda guys after Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and he is supposed to be also in Iran, that is true. Um, my understanding is that he is a little bit more involved in the communications than Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah was, but again, I don't have access to classified information. I can only tell you from what I hear when I talk to my colleagues and uh, what is publicly known. Um, so yes, uh, there are still a couple of these guys inside Iran, and there, there is still some communications outside uh, from Iran to the outside and back to Iran as far as Al-Qaeda is concerned, not by the Iranian government, but by these individuals. Um, so it does play a role. Um, there has been some communications between Iran and um, al-Nusra and Al-Qaeda elements in Syria over the last couple of years. But certainly Iran is not the global center for uh, uh, the, the top leadership of Al-Qaeda. That remains in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region around Zawahiri. Speaking of Zawahiri, another story emerged over the weekend in some social media postings that I saw suggesting that Al-Qaeda may have a bigger problem on its hands because these postings from some fairly credible sources suggested that Zawahiri, himself might have died more than a month ago. Is that something that's made it to your radar? Um, I've read this, but to be told, I mean, look, there is a generation problem, right? Uh, Ayman Zawahiri was only the successor of Osama bin Laden because Osama bin Laden died, 
they have the same generation. They're getting old, or he is getting old. Um, he's been cut off from because Al Qaeda is this network organization now, where the affiliates are actually far more important as far as terrorist operations are concerned than the center. And the center is basically a symbol of uh, of the organization. It's supposed to put out some propaganda. It's supposed to put out um, uh, ideological statements, but it's not really involved in the day-to-day -day planning of actual terrorist operations or a global strategy for that matter. Um, what you need would then be a new generation to revitalize the center. And there were a lot of people thinking about Hamza bin Laden really fitting the bill um, because uh, this is getting really in the nitty-gritty now of, of Al-Qaeda. There's always been a, a Gulf faction and an Egyptian faction. Um, Egyptian faction being led by Amal Zawahiri. And the Gulf guys in Al-Qaeda never were comfortable yeah. with being led by a you know lesser Arab, in inverted commas, in their ideological view, i.e. an Egyptian Amal al-Zawahiri. So Hamza bin Laden being the son of bin Laden, being a Saudi himself, being married uh, you know, to the daughter of Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah, um, was some kind of an upcoming star. And you could see him being interviewed multiple times in Al-Qaeda's most famous media outlet, Inspire magazine, um, published by AQAP online. So it really seemed to have pushed Hamza bin Laden, and then he was killed. And since that time, there's really not been a credible figure to follow uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. So if he's dead, you know, Al-Qaeda central uh, you know, will quickly will have to look for a, 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 a replacement of his. Um, but I, you know, sooner or later, this is the problem that Al-Qaeda will face. This man is not going to live forever, especially with a job as, as dangerous as his. Um, so you know, that generational problem is going to come. I, I couldn't confirm that Ayman al-Zawahiri is dead on, on the basis of this information. It's, it's really hard to tell because the guy is yeah. so isolated yeah. that news of his whereabouts are really scarce to come by. So if he's alive, where is he, where is he thought to be? Well, we all hope and pray in the Afghan-Pakistan border region, as we've been told by the Pakistani government over the many years. You know, uh, And we do hope not somewhere in an urban Pakistani area like the other guy was. Yeah. <laughs> Bin Laden. So, uh, you know, it was years, I think, after Mullah Omar died before we figured out that he was dead or learned that he was dead. Is that right? Yes. Um, several years, actually. Um, I think three and a half years. Yeah. Um, and he's, <laughs> he was the leader of the Taliban at the time. He was the leader of the Taliban. Um, again, not a very young, especially not a very healthy guy who quietly died. Um, and the Taliban kept um, quiet about this. Um, for the main reason that he was such a symbol. I mean, they, they not only idolized him to the rank of a near prophet, um, but he also had the personal loyalty pledge of Al-Qaeda, um, you know, renewed pretty much annually. So removing him from the equation would have potentially weakened the Taliban draw. And it took them years and years and years to, to then come up with a solution um, uh, uh, to that problem, and then re-getting the pledge of loyalty from Al-Qaeda, which, by the way, Al-Qaeda has not taken back um, uh, now that the negotiations with the U.S. are ongoing. So Al-Qaeda is still, you know, uh, the leadership is personally loyal um, to the Taliban. So there's a very, very strong connection. So for the sake of argument, if both um, Abdullah, Ahmed Abdullah and Zawahri yeah. are dead, what does that do to the organization? I mean, ideologically, symbolically, propaganda-wise, um, that would really mean a big hit. Um, operationally, not very much. I mean, as I said, these are symbols. 
and sooner or later another symbol is going to come. Our security threat from Al-Qaeda is firmly entrenched in Yemen uh, with AQAP, more or less completely autonomous from the, from the center, apart from some communication. Um, and Yemen, I mentioned, because that's the one Al-Qaeda affiliate who has the declared goal and a track record of attempted and successful attacks in the West. Um, if I may remind you, Charlie Hebdo, the first attack, not the one that happened a couple of weeks ago, but the first attack organized by AQAP. So this is where the threat to the homeland, in inverted comma, is coming from. Um, secondly, for the rest of the world, Al-Qaeda East Africa, Al-Shabaab very firmly in control uh, in its territories in Somalia, in West Africa, growing connections between various different Al-Qaeda groups, building more and more coalitions there. In Southeast Asia, ISIL is far more famous, but Abu Sayyaf, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, is the one with the money. Several million dollars a year being generated through kidnap ransom schemes. That's where the danger from Al-Qaeda comes from. Whether Al-Qaeda, Al-Ayman uh, al-Zawahiri is alive or not, is not going to essentially lower the threat profile of the organization globally, as far as our concerns are, are, are concerned. Um, look, ISIL lost al-Baghdadi, the caliph, and a couple of weeks ago, a guy ran through Vienna shooting people, pledging loyalty to ISIL. So the killing of symbolic leaders or the dying of symbolic leaders is only a very temporary weakening of these kind of network structures. What haven't I asked you about that you think is important should we discuss today? Well, I mean, it is really important to explore on how Iran's relationship with Al-Qaeda you know, is at this particular point, because they are really playing with fire here. Um, if this guy would have been killed in Lavazan, there would at least be an argument that they're still keeping the, the leading figures in some kind of a semi-confinement as hostages against attacks on Iranian soil. And as you can, can see in the last couple of years, there's been very little of those. Um, however, getting killed, and I know I've lived in Tehran myself for six years, getting killed in Pastoran, that's the shopping area of the elegant part of Tehran, doesn't point at all to a, a you know, semi-confinement or any confinement. Um, mm. Therefore, you know, th there is a really dangerous flirtation apparently going on between the, uh, the Iranian security forces and Al-Qaeda elements. And, um, you know, Iran, you know, is not immune to paying the price. Others have tried to flirt with Al-Qaeda and burnt their fingers. This may yet come back to haunt Iran. You know, this also suggests to me, too, that um, looking at what Iran is facing now with the U.S. and has been for the last few years, it's an increasingly difficult economic situation. Uh, and with the killing of General Qasim Soleimani, um, there's uh, more than a more than a bit of anger there towards the West, and perhaps there's this idea that uh, Al Qaeda can help them avenge some of that. Is that is that something you think is is, is plausible? Ah, difficult to say because I mean this relationship uh, with with Al Qaeda did not start uh, after the killing of Soleimani. This has been going on for quite a while. Um, so yes, this may have been considered as one of the one of the things that they can do, but they do have enough pressure points in Iraq and Syria that they really do not need the aid of Al Qaeda um, to to hit uh, the West where it really hurts. Um, these are both very fragile situations. In both situations, Iran is a major stakeholder 
um, undeniably uh, uh, at this point, though there are other pressure points. Um, I just wondered what, what this guy was doing in the shopping district and why they would allow him to live in, in Iran. Um, I know they've been sheltering other terrorists. They've been sheltering the families of uh, the individuals who killed President Sadat for, for many, many years, but, um, just simply to spite the Egyptians. Well, that's part of my question, um, Dr. Schindler. You know, there may be more than meets the eye on this situation. One thing that's very clear from the beginning is that Iran is a nation of Shia. And the al-Qaeda operatives, for the most part, as far as I know, are all Sunnis. And they sought to kill Shia. Uh, oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I so... Mean, not, not only all, they're all Sunnis because they consider Shias yeah. So now, now, you know, here al-Qaeda and, and the Islamic State weren't very different. The Islamic State uh, simply said, if they're heretics, we kill them now. And al-Qaeda said, uh, they're heretics and we kill them later, after we have control. Yeah, so um, my point is that um, the Iranian government knew this. So they allowed them to be there for a reason. And it seems to me that that was a strategic reason that you laid out before, you know, to protect Iran from al-Qaeda's possible, you know, any possible attacks or... or uh, on Iran and Iran, Iranian citizens, but also as a weapon against the West as well, that they could manipulate. That's something that you know, crossed my mind on a number of occasions. But um, this whole situation now with allowing this individual, as you say, to roam the shopping district suggests he was not a hostage, right? Yes. I mean, the whole argument that these are there as a, a, a token to protect the country is, of course, weakened when you uh, see there is very little control. You know, hostages work best when you have control over them. Mm. And they don't work quite as well when you don't really have control over them. And uh, no one has control. Pastoran Street is a four-lane road with about a million cars every day on it. Uh, you do not control someone, you know, driving on that road unless you are in, in, in with the car. And there's no reports that indicate there was any Pastoran minder in the car at all. Just him and his daughter. Well, um, this is the reason why we go to you for these things, because you have this deep knowledge and you also have experience on the ground in places like Iran and Tehran. And uh, your background, uh, especially the years at the uh, United Nations with the AQ Taliban ISIS monitoring team, tells us that we've got some very good information that uh, coming from you. So we thank you again, Dr. Schindler. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, the call and any time again. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project. I should say Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler. Always interesting to talk to that guy because he's got so much depth on so many layers of the counter-terrorism picture. That's it for this particular show. Coming up, in our next episode. It was created with a specific mission, namely to protect the nation from technological surprise. That's Victoria Coleman. She's director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, better known as DARPA. And they are a part of the US military. And not only are they in the business of preventing technological surprise for the US, but also conversely to develop technologies that can create that surprise for others. And one of their more recent surprises was helping the pharmaceutical industry develop a COVID-19 vaccine in 83 days. 
a complex vaccine that would normally take years. That's coming up in our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, if you would like to follow us, do it on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, please, if you want more information about national security, then you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can sign up at WTOP.com. A sincere thanks, as always, for listening. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. was coming. Guess who? Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.